You're listening to KTO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudroom's Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear are a compilation of highlights from our seventh season, which ran from September 2017 to May 2018. So the themes vary by story. We'd like to give a special thanks to Northern Light United Church for hosting our live events, to COPA for donating coffee, and to the Rookery for cookies. The following story was told November 2017. The theme was, If Only I'd Listened. Our next one is Guy Archibald. Guy Archibald is a mountain boy originally from Colorado. He thinks life is one big experiment. You don't know until you give it a try. So try everything. So I used to work at a mine way out in the desert of southeastern Utah. Beautiful country, red slip rock, canyons, sage, pinyon pines. And we'd work a schedule of 10 days working and then four days off. But there really wasn't anything to do on your four days off. The nearest anything was a one-building town 81 miles away called Fry Canyon. But from the mine camp off on the horizon, I could see this large ridge that stuck up. It looked like a clenched fist. And I knew that Lake Powell was just on the other side of that ridge. So I made up my mind, such as it was, that I was going to hike there sometime. Now, to go back a little, for many years, I was a member of a mountain search and rescue team and they drill into your head the two rules of going into the wilderness. First of all, you tell somebody where you're going and when you're gonna come back. And second of all, you bring some essentials in case you end up out there longer than you planned. And we had to drill that into a lot of other people's heads. So one day, I set off across the desert towards my clenched fist. No matches, no food, no water, and I hadn't told a soul. (laughs) So I'm walking across basically this big plateau, beautiful desert, I go a few miles, and I come across this big chasm in front of me, this huge crevasse in the earth hundreds of feet deep, 100 feet wide or so. And right where I intersected it, there was a ledge down below, about 15-foot drop below, a big ledge with some pinions growing on it and yuccas and greasewood. And I couldn't see over the edge. Looked like if I could get down, I could climb out the other side. Continue on my way. So I walked up the canyon about a mile, and I'm looking and looking. Nope, no way down. I come back to the same spot, and no, I still can't see over the edge. So I walk down the canyon about a mile, looking and looking. Nope, can't find a way down. So I came back to that spot, and I decided, I'll just jump down there, look over the edge. So I did, jumped down there, landed in the soft sand. I walked over to the edge, and I looked down. Nope. And then I looked behind me. Uh Uh-oh. 
Now I know what a spider feels like in a bathtub. <laughs> in the parlance of the desert, it's called being potholed. So now I get to entertain myself by cycling through the five stages of grief here. <laughs> so first there's denial. I'm not stuck. I'm going to get out of here. So I'd get back as far as I could, and I would run, and I would leap, and I'd throw myself against the rock, and I'd claw and scramble and scratch like a cat being suspended over water. And every time I'd slide down and land in a heap a little bit softer piece of meat every time. And I did this over and over again. And then there was anger. Man. And then there's bargaining. Please, God. Oh, Lord, I promise I'll be a good, oh, maybe a better person if you just get me out. And then there's depression. Let's see what's going to get me first. Dehydration, starvation, exposure. And then, of course, acceptance. Someday, somebody's going to come along this lonely spot, and they're going to look down there, and here's a skeleton with some tattered remains of clothing leaning up against the rock. And I cycled through this for the next seven, eight hours, spending a little more time on one or the other. <laughs> Became very good at them all. <laughs> Obviously, I got off the ledge. And the way I did it was there was a little pinion pine about 10 feet tall next to the rock, and I climbed up in the top of that thing, and I'd start swinging it back and forth and back and forth, and at the right moment, I'd throw myself out of the tree and onto the rock, and I'd scramble and scratch, and I'd come down, and I'd land in a big wad in between the tree and the rock, and I did this over and over again, fueled by just increasing desperation. Finally, finally, I got just enough of a toehold where I could scramble up. I got just enough friction where I could take that one step necessary to climb off of this ledge and get out of this whole pothole. Sometimes listening is not enough. And as I'm dragging my now tenderized body back across the desert, it dawns on me that if we as humans actually listened to people, if we actually learned from others' experience and did not have to repeat the same mistakes, we would have colonized the universe by now. <laughs> but if that collective we is represented by me, <laughs> the universe is a very lucky place. The next story was recorded December 2017. The theme was Square Peg in a Round Hole. 
Our next speaker tonight is Liz Eilers. She moved to Juno seven years ago and found it to be paradise. In her spare time, she loves to take corgis on walks, try new recipes in the kitchen, and decoupage. She is excited to be on the Mudroom stage for the second time in 2017 and grateful for the amazing community here. Please welcome Elizabeth. Thank you. I am a self-professed small town girl, lover of cold climates, so Juno is paradise for me. Long days give to many decoupaging crafts. I've always been a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. I was at the height of my anxiousness and awkwardness my freshman year of college. Most teenagers, when given the opportunity to live separately from their parents for the first time, experiment with drugs and alcohol. This was not the case for me. I was a much more morally convicted person at the time, much more innocent. Because of this innocence, uh, my sense of humor was very immature, and one of my most prized possessions was a department store mannequin hand that had been a gift, a high school graduation gift from a friend, a fellow thespian, uh, as part of an inside joke from a play that we'd been in. Naturally, I named her Tammy, Mannequin Hand, Tammy for short, and I will refer to her as Tammy for the duration of the story. The Mannequin Hand is Tammy. So, I take Tammy to my freshman year of college. She moves into my 15th story dorm room with me at Western Illinois University, home of the fighting Leathernecks. I quickly discovered that I was now, instead of a big fish in a small pond, a little fish in a big pond. Thompson Hall Dormitory is the equivalent of a skyscraper in Macomb, Illinois. It's 17 stories long, or tall, excuse me, albeit it's a skyscraper filled with teenagers. So it wasn't easy for me to make friends, uh, part of it being that I wasn't interested in drugs and alcohol, and part of it just being because I'm a late bloomer but an old soul. For example, I had a velvet Elvis hanging in my dorm room. <laughs> weird. It's weird. So... Tammy comes with me to my freshman year of college, and what I discover is using Tammy as an icebreaker is a great way to make friends, especially if you incorporate her <laughs> as part of any practical joke or prank. That being said, one of our most favorite pranks to incorporate her into that kind of evolved as time went along was tying her to a rope, we would secure a note onto Tammy, which asked, need a hand, question mark, <laughs> or just here to lend a hand, exclamation point. And from my 15th story dorm room, I would lower Tammy down to the 15 stories of potential victims. <laughs> so, this kind of became a nightly routine or ritual with me, and Tammy's fan base grew, as I'm sure you can imagine. 
And it was a night just like any other night. And we're lowering Tammy down. Girls are packed into my dorm room like sardines. Lower and lower she's going down with a note that asks if anyone needs a hand. When all of a sudden, I assume it's one of Tammy's many fans stopping by to check in on the antics. Maybe they just want to be a part of it. Miss, what are you throwing out the window? Campus police. I had lowered Tammy pretty far down at this point, so I'm simultaneously trying to reel her back in to my dorm room, also while being respectful to the officer. Officer, nothing. We are not throwing anything out of the window. As you can see, this mannequin hand is securely fastened to the rope. There's no danger of this mannequin hand falling to the ground whatsoever. He was not impressed. Unfortunately, I had to hand Tammy over, and the officer confiscated Tammy. Things had gotten out of hand. <laughs> Myself and the four other girls in my dorm room at the time earned ourselves a judicial review in front of the Thompson Hall Housing Authority. That fateful morning came when we found ourselves in front of the judge. I don't think she had briefed herself on this case at all. She opens up the file, takes a look at it. Some confusion falls upon her face. Well, uh, usually these situations involve drugs or alcohol. So I'm just going to say don't do it again. Thank you. No, this, that would never happen again. This will never happen again. I will never be so reckless with Tammy in the future. Of course, I expect her to hand Tammy back to me. Oh, uh, so, uh, ma'am, can I have my mannequin hand back, please? Oh, sure. Thankfully, they had kept Tammy safe. Tammy and I were reunited. Uh, since that instance, I've never let Tammy get too far from reach. Thankfully, I do still have Tammy today. So the good news is, is you can spend a lifetime being a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. But if you're lucky, you just might get a helping hand. The next story you're about to hear was told January 2018. The theme for the event was Fork in the Road. Our first speaker tonight is Greg Capito. Greg is a 45-year resident of Alaska. He came to Juneau in 1975. He liked it and stayed. Please welcome to the stage, Greg Capito. The name of my piece is The Curious Visitor. Keep that adjective curious in mind as I relate this story. 
It was November 1970 and I was a short timer. Two more weeks and I was out of Vietnam. So I was shocked when the duty officer walked up to me and said, I need a man for a special detail outside the wire. Midnight, full combat gear, be there. I was in a state of shock. What? I go to the armor, Smitty, you remember all that stuff I turned in? I need it back, man. Why? I don't know, something squirrely going on. I got a bad feeling. Well, midnight, I'm at the front gate, Jeep pulls up, duty officer says, throw your gear in the back, we're out of here. We drove about five kilometers outside the base to a small village, and at the edge of the village was a compound. It looked like an old French villa. Duty officer looked at me and said, this is straightforward, Sergeant. Provide security for this compound. I'll pick you up in the morning. And he roared away. I'm standing at the gate thinking, what on earth? I open up the gate to the compound. It was a U-shaped facility, a bunch of pastel-colored buildings surrounded by a big brick wall. But everything was boarded up and closed, so I didn't know what I was guarding or why. Adjacent to the front gate was a bunker, but it was dark. So I tiptoed down into the bunker and felt my way around for a radio telephone. There was no radio telephone. I had no communications. Bad thing. Bad idea, bad vibe. I sat down on the bunker and thought, I'm just going to stay here, be quiet, morning will come, maybe no problems. As soon as I sat down on the sandbags, the heat enveloped me. It made my eyelids want to close. I was sweating because that bunker was like a sauna. First hard hat came off, then bandolier, then that heavy nine-pound flak jacket. I was exhausted, I was hot and miserable. There was an illuminated field in front of the bunker, about 100 meters. I thought, I'm just going to focus on that field. But nobody's going to be out there because there's a curfew. You don't violate a curfew at night, ever. For the thousandth time, I looked out at that illuminated field, and at the far end of it, I saw a man standing. I looked, what on earth is that? It's a young Vietnamese guy about my age complete with Ho Chi Minh sandals, the whole nine yards. My hands, my eyes focused on his hands, but they were in neutral position beside his body. No weapons were visible. But he had a curious look in his eye. And I thought, my imagination, this guy's got explosives on his back. He's a sapper, he's gonna blow the place up. Or maybe, no, he's just there for reconnaissance, but then he's gonna come back with friends. Or maybe, just maybe, he works in the compound during the day and he's going to come back tonight and rip some materials off. The guy was walking directly towards the darkened bunker I was sitting in and I thought, I can't let him get close. 50 meters is too close. But what am I going to do if he crosses the 50 meter line? Well, first thing I'll do is I'll yell, Dong Lai! Dong Lai! And if he doesn't stop, I'll fire a single round over his head. If he does anything aggressive, like attack the bunker, I'll take him out. So I slid around into the M16, very quietly, no metallic sound, flipped the selector switch forward, put my fingers on the safety, got a sight picture, center mass, chest, and I thought, what's the penalty for shooting an unarmed civilian? Good Lord. Now, the Brits in an earlier war would have called this a sticky wicket, and it was, because there were no good choices here. 
The guy kept walking forward slowly, methodically, with that curious look in his eye. When he got to the 50-meter line, he stopped. And I swear, for 20 seconds, he looked right through the bunk darkened bunker into my eyes. And I thought, good Lord, what's going on here? Is this an aberration? What's going on? Then he turned, and he walked out of the illuminated perimeter and into the darkness. Then I really got scared. You could hear my heart beating. On came the flak jacket, bandolier, steel pot. I turned my ears on, and I thought, this guy comes back with friends and outflanks this position. I'm toast. I was nervous. I was hot. I was worried. But the guy never came back. He vanished. The curious visitor walked away. I stood there for hours watching and listening, and finally on the horizon I saw this thin white line. It was daylight. It was dawn. Then I heard this magical sound. The Jeep was coming back. Second gear. I could hear it grinding. It was the duty officer coming back to pick me up. He roared up in a cloud of dust and said, throw your gear in the back. We're out of here. We roared back to the base. Halfway back to the base, he looks at me under his helmet and he says, Sergeant, I trust that your, I trust that your uh, detail was uneventful. I just grunted. I didn't want to talk about it. He accepted my grunt. We got back to the base. I cleared my weapon in the clearing barrel, turned all my gear back into the armor, tried to rack out. 11 o'clock the next morning, I awoke absolutely drenched in sweat. I slipped into my shower tongs, wrapped a towel around my waist, decided to walk to the shower room to see if we had any fresh water that day to rinse off this mess. I got halfway across the company compound and I hear this, Sergeant, Sergeant! I cringed, another stupid detail. Sergeant, you're gonna love me. It was our company clerk. Corporal, why am I gonna love you? Hey man, convoy's leaving for Cameron Bay tomorrow at noon and you're on it. Then you're going to Tonsonut. From Tonsonut, you're catching the freedom bird back to the world. What are you talking about? Your deer roast orders. I got them, man. I said, let me look at those. Holy smokes. So right there in the middle of the company compound, he and I did a little jig that went something like this. All my fingers and all my toes are going back to the world. Back to the world. <laughs> Hallelujah, I'm leaving this place. Wow. Oh, Sergeant, one more thing. Oh, what's that, Corporal? Don't forget your shot records. Shot records, oh geez, yeah, gotta get my shot records. Went back to my hooch, put everything in the duffel bag. Sure enough, three days later, I was at Fort Lewis, Washington at a transit center waiting for a flight home. Now nearly 50 years have passed since that memorable night, but I still lie in bed wondering, and I wanna share these thoughts. Who was that guy? Was he trying to hurt me? Did he survive the war? Did he go to school? Did he get married, raise kids? But the most intriguing question is this one. Who would I be as a person standing before you tonight if I'd taken the life of another human being whose only mistake was being curious? Thank you. This next story was told February 2018. The theme was Close Quarters. 
Our next speaker is Riley Woodford. Riley moved to Juneau in 1985. Like most folks in their mid-20s in downtown Juneau, he shared houses with housemates in close quarters living while enjoying the wide open spaces outdoors. He loved the old houses built close together on streets so steep that the sidewalks are staircases. In 1992, he moved into a small, uniquely situated barn red house on 3rd Street, beginning a chapter in a tale of close quarters living that you will hear tonight. Riley. So for 12 years, I lived downtown next door to the Bergman Hotel. <laughs> the Bergman Hotel is a boxy, four-story hotel on the corner of 3rd and Harris. And I lived right next door to it. The houses were really close together. It was built on the property line. And if you walked from my front yard to the backyard between the buildings, you could touch both buildings all the way back. It was like a short hike through a slot canyon. And if you stood in my backyard and looked up, there were 18 big windows, big curtainless, screenless windows. <laughs> nine of them were above my roof and nine of them were above my backyard. And if you, if you were up, say, on the fourth story, looking out of one of those windows, you didn't even see my house down below. You just looked out over town and the harbor, and if you flicked a cigarette, it would fly completely over my roof into my neighbor's yard. But if you dropped something, it would go you know, down onto my roof or into the slot canyon or maybe into my backyard. So I know, you know some people in this room have maybe peed off of a dock or a deck. Or <laughs> maybe some of you have even peed out of the four-story window of a hotel onto the asphalt shingle roof of a house 25 feet below. And it's really loud. It's really loud. But if you're in that house, under that roof, it's like somebody is running a garden hose on a drum head. So that was my first introduction to the things that would come out of the windows of the Bergman. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a, a restaurant in the back of the Bergman on the first story, Pat's Grub State. So the week I moved in, in October of 1992, the deep fat fryer broke down in the, in the Grub State. And it was about the size of a dorm fridge. So it fit through the window and they pushed it out the window into the backyard. And that was how I met Pat. I went over and said, hey, could you come and get this deep fat fryer? <laughs> and, I, and I got the answer that I would get for the next 12 years, the answer that anyone in the neighborhood, everyone got anytime we went to the Bergman and asked anything. And that was, sure. And then nothing would ever happen. <laughs> so after about four months, a friend came over and we pulled that thing out of the big puddle of coagulated grease drug it around the back of the hotel and leaned it up against the side of the building with all of the other broken appliances and soggy mattresses that had been leaned up back there. So now I had this big puddle of coagulated grease to deal with and all of this other organic matter that was raining out of those windows. So I just composted it. I just thought I'll make a compost and so I shoveled in half-eaten ramen and regurgitated takeout and condoms and everything. And <laughs> And there were things that were lost out of the windows, too, like I composted cocaine and, <laughs> and, and I composted Dear John letters. Everything went into the compost. But it wasn't all bad. I found a $100 bill once in the backyard. And one time, an unopened bottle of Crown Royal in a little purple velvet bag survived the fall. 
So eventually, Pat's Grub Steak closed and things quieted down a little bit, but, but people still sometimes you know, pushed all of the furniture in their room out the windows. Those big screenless, curtainless windows, they just tied the whole neighborhood together in a, this is a big fishbowl and somebody should change the water sort of way, but <laughs> the water never changed. We just got new fish all the time, different new fish. And on the other side of the Bergman, right, the, the uphill side, there's another 18 windows. And the people over there, they looked down into the windows, and they saw things that they'll never unsee. <laughs> and at the top of the Third Street stairs, they actually could look down on the roof of the Bergman and wonder things like, why is there an entire moose carcass on the roof of the hotel? <laughs> and we... You know, we lost parking spaces to the same burned up couches and we walked around the same broken hot water heaters and I was just the closest cleaning up when ravens managed to push the moose bones off the roof. So, this one January, there was about two feet of fresh snow downtown and my wife worked evenings at the newspaper at the Empire and she called at 10.45 and said, I'll be home at 11. So just as I hang up the phone, I hear this woman's voice, and she goes, "Woohoo!" And then I hear this dude go, say it again, baby. And she goes, "Woohoo!" And I go into the bathroom, and I slide open the bathroom window, and I look up, and in the fourth story window up there above me, there's, there's a woman sitting in the windowsill, and she's looking, she's facing into the room, but I can see the back of her head, and she's leaning back. And then... I can see her back, you know, and she's leaning way back. And then I see her waist. She's leaning way back, and it's pretty obvious she's going to come out of the window, and she does. So she falls out the window and hits the roof, boom, right above my head. And then boom, 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 she rolls down through the snow, and bam, there she is, laid out, half naked, in the slot canyon, in the snow, completely KO'd. So I can tell you now that, you know, nothing was broken. She was just stunned. She was fine. <laughs> so the windows slide up in the Bergman, and people are calling 911. And then this guy comes down, and he's, like, got a lighter, right? And he's waving it in her face. He's going, hey, baby, are you okay? And he's shaking her and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like don't shake her. Don't shake her. Just get a blanket. Put a blanket on her. So then all of a sudden, there's lights flashing off the side of the building and everything, and Paramedics come and they come down through the slot canyon with a stretcher and they put her on it and strap her down and she starts swinging and stuff yelling, Mose, Mose, what's happening, Mose? So Mose is gone. <laughs> and the paramedics are looking at me like. <laughs> and then there's a knock at the door and I go and it's the police, right? And they want to know if she was pushed out the window. And I said, well, yeah. yeah. She was pushed out the window, and well, was it intentional? And I said, well, no, I'm sure it wasn't intentional. And he's like, okay, fine. So I shut the door, and I'm just standing there in the living room looking at the door, and my wife walks in, and she says, what? <laughs> I was like, a lot can happen in 15 minutes. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded at Northern Light United Church during our seventh season, which ran from September 2017 to May 2018. This next story was also part of Mudroom's seventh season. It was told March 2018. The theme was Wet and Wild. Our last speaker this evening is Jeff Rogers. Jeff has lived in Juneau almost a decade and spent most of his time working for the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation. He and James Hoagland got married last summer, and together they lead Juneau's LGBTQ community. They love the wet and wild life of Juneau, but they regularly escape south of the border to dry out and soak in the sun. Jeff, come on up. Every year since James and I have been together, we have vacationed in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. For those of you who don't know Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, especially the old town, it's beautiful and it's a gay Mecca. Beaches and bars, as far as the eye can see, are filled with gays and lesbians from the United States and from Canada and all over the world uh, looking to unwind and have a good time. James and I can't be in Puerto Vallarta for more than five minutes without somebody telling us that we have to get on the wet and wild cruise. As soon as we're walking down the street, we get solicited from across the street, hey boys, I've got tickets to the wet and wild cruise. Well, the Wet and Wild Cruise is exactly what you can imagine. It is a um, sunstroke-inducing, um, alcohol-fueled kind of adult binge to a nude beach where people do shots out of each other's body parts, if you can get the image. Now, thankfully, this story is not about the Wet and Wild Cruise because James and I have never been on the Wet and Wild Cruise. It's just not our speed. But there are great things to do in Puerto Vallarta, and our favorite amongst them is to go to the Vallarta Botanical Gardens. Some of you have probably been. It's about an hour up into the mountains. And in, by botanical garden standards, it's modest. It's, it's a little woolly and unorganized, um, but it's beautiful. It's, it's just raw Mexican jungle magic. In the very middle of it, there's this hacienda, a two-story structure with a bar and a restaurant on the top, and then a great open-air area below. Um, this is our favorite trip, and we have our little pattern. So three years ago, James and I were taking our trip to the botanical garden. We have our uh, coffee and empanada in hand that we've gotten from a little bakery, and we're headed to the corner where we're gonna pick up the bus. And we love the bus in Mexico. It's just one of the best parts about being there is riding the bus. And it's exactly what many of you know about Mexican buses. Um, they're ramshackle, but they're filled with beautiful, great people, kids and families, and there's always somebody playing a guitar. We hop on the bus and we start to head up into the mountains. And the ride is as you would expect. Oh, I have to go back and tell you one important detail. Um, as we were getting to the bus, just as about we were to get on, James says, I don't think I feel well. Now, stomach bugs are super common in Mexico, and we've kind of come to accept, accept them. We don't make 
many special arrangements. But we know what to do. We hop into a convenience store, we get two bottles of electrolyte water and some crackers to go with our breakfast. Hop on the bus, and we start winding up into the mountains. And it's as you expect. It's, it's rough. Um, there are constant speed bumps for some reason. And the road winds through high hairpin turns. You all know where this is going. Um, we have eaten our breakfast, and James has consumed his water. And you know, maybe after 15 minutes, I look over, and James is looking pretty green. And I say, honey, are you OK? He just shakes his head no. I know he's going to throw up. I grab our bag, and I try to see if we have a plastic bag or something. We don't, but we do have two fabric sarongs. And I think, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe if he puked into the sarong like it was a nest, we would catch some amount of it. So I gave him the sarong with this instruction to catch his own vomit. <laughs> Indeed, it's not very long, and James does throw up a little bit. It's really not so bad. It was a little bit right into the sarong, and it, it just wasn't too bad. It stinks, and the bus is hot. The buses are always hot. So he's holding a little sarong in a hot, stinky bus that he's vomited in, but it's really not so bad. It was only a couple of minutes before James, I, I can only describe it as, as, as if a, a cartoon character had unhooked their lower jaw and <laughs> fire hose-like projectile vomited everywhere. Onto the seat, onto the floor, onto himself, and of course onto me. Now as vomit goes, it wasn't so bad. It was mostly the two bottles of water he had just drank and the little bits of crackers he had been eating. I think for a moment, James actually probably felt better, and this was good for the group. But the problem now is that we don't have a, a little sarong nest with a little puke in it. There's puke everywhere, including a huge pool of puke on the floor of the bus. I will try to paint this picture, which is that the bus is going at varying speeds, stopping um, and starting and stopping and starting. Yeah, you guys know what's coming. <laughs> the pool of vomit on the floor has turned into a river of vomit on the floor with a wave that cascades forward and back. <laughs> there was a little kid in front of us, a sweet little kid, who'd taken to splashing around in it with his feet. As the vomit rolled back and forth and back and forth, I tried, uh, as a good tourist, to soak up the vomit that was on the floor so as not to disturb it. You know what's funny? Nobody even really seemed to care. <laughs> Which makes me think that tourists must puke on the bus in Mexico all the time. Um, we finally got to the garden, and I uh, gathered up our puke-soaked sarongs, and I escorted my puke-soaked husband off the bus. I knew what we had to do. There is a, one of the features of the garden is a, a wonderful river that comes down out of the mountains. And it's about uh, maybe a mile hike. It's not, not too far. And I said, we just have to go to the river. So I led James down to the river. Um, he stripped down. I stripped down. We both washed. I washed both of our clothes and both sarongs in the river and hung them up to dry. Uh, we, I think we felt, probably fell asleep there in the sun for a moment. I eventually took James back up to the hacienda 
um, and laid him down to rest with a bottle of water and continued about my day in the garden. Um, it's, it's a spectacular place. I recommend it to any of you who've never been. So I have never been uh, on Puerto Vallarta's famed wet and wild cruise, but I've had at least one, if not several more, incredible wet and wild adventures there, uh, and I hope to have many, many more. So thank you very much. <laughs> The theme for this next story was White Lies. It was told in April of 2018. Our final speaker of the evening is a board member, Sarah Hannon. In last event, she roasted me up here, but I got nothing. But I will point out that a prospective politician picking the theme White Lies is intriguing. <laughs> Sarah is a veteran of the Mudroom stage and is on our storyboard. She first came to the Mudroom stage in February 2013 with the theme, First Time, to tell the quaint, romantic, funny tale of meeting a man and deciding to elope on their third date. They waited a few weeks, but they really did not know each other very well when they got married. There may have been some things left out of their backstories. Please welcome Sarah to the stage. Okay, so I've changed it up. A minister, a journalist, and a politician all show up on stage to tell lies. <laughs> There's my story. I grew up the middle daughter of three to an outdoor Alaskan hunting, fishing, gathering, recreating family. And my parents expected each one of us to contribute to the best of our abilities at every stage of the way. It was all girls, that made no difference to my parents. Their expectation was we were gonna be independent and capable. And we fully understood that it wasn't about just the recreation and outdoor activity, that it was a way for my parents to put good, healthy food on the table. And depending on your role in that, you develop different skill sets. And it was clear early on my older sister Ellen had some genes I didn't get. Her favorite thing is to jump out of bed before it's light and be going. I kind of ease into the day. And the whole alpha predator thing, she has it more than anyone else. She spent her entire adult life in Craig, Alaska, which you may not know, but is like the mecca for hunting, fishing, gathering, because something's always in season. And my sister is a revered huntress by men who've hunted all over the world. I had an old guy once in Craig say to me, you're Ellen's sister, right? Yeah. You anything like her hunting? And I said, no. And he said, I was just checking to see if you were a liar. <laughs> She's legendary. Back to our childhood. We had never had play guns, because we had real guns. And we were taught to use them. And we were allowed to use them as children, but there were a couple rules about guns. And one of them was, you were never allowed to take a gun out of the gun case by yourself. You had to have somebody with you. So that meant if she wanted to go duck hunting before school started in the morning, she had to wake me up, which usually meant the dogs came in and licked your face and we'd cry. We lived on the city limits of Anchorage, and so if you just crossed the street, went down the bluff, we could, she could. We was, I was along for the ride, hunt. And basically, she and the dogs would go hunt, and I'd find somewhere out of the weather to curl up and wait. And 
wet dog in the face, we were done and go back up the hill, but you had to participate in some way, and really my end of the deal usually was the processing and the preserving of the food. And that was one of the elements our parents had taught us. If you were gonna hunt it, kill it, gather it, grab it, you need to be able to prepare it, preserve it, take care of it for future. Fast forward 20 years. I meet a man. On our third date, we decide to elope. We wait a few weeks. We get married. We don't spend a lot on the backstory. But a few days after we're married, he's already got a work trip planned to Craig, and he's going to meet the first member of my family um, that he's going to meet because we hadn't been dating that long, so nobody had ever met. And I'm not really worried about it because I know that he's going to mesh right in with my sister because even though we haven't known each other very long, one of the first things I noticed on date number two when I went to his house was his kitchen was covered with canning jars and canning supplies and there was meat and fish and berries and he had picked it all and he's a machine when it comes to production, my husband. He provides for a whole network of people and my sister had always done that for a whole network of people and for most of our adult life before I was married, my sister still hunted for me, and my job was to come to her house and either take care of the kids while she went out and killed a deer for me, and then I could package it and preserve it and take it home. I had fresh venison, and she got to go hunting without the kids, and it was a great deal. And then I married this guy who fast friends with my sister, and in the subsequent 22 years we've been married, he's hunted with her and her husband all over. And um, one of my husband's favorite sayings, and he's the king of witticisms, is, it's about the free meat. Now, free meat doesn't mean no cost, right? You understand that. Free just means you didn't pay a store. But any plane tickets, boat costs, insurance, fuel, that's, that doesn't count. That's, it's free meat if you went and got it yourself. All those other expenses are just expenses. The meat itself was free. <laughs> right, you get that. So endless amount of time in our life has been consumed with free meat processing, but along the way, I generally am on the shore side of events. I love to go on the adventure, but I'm just as likely to be wandering around the trees picking up sticks and making a fire and making camp or, you know, on the boat, neglecting my fishing pole, looking at the clouds, that kind of stuff. So if they need a body count to get an extra rod or an extra deer ticket, then I'm in. But otherwise, I'll stay home. And anytime you're at my sister's, this hunting stuff, it involves lots of people and gear and boats, and there's always a madness. And the joke is, you've been there long enough, you need a vacation from my sister's. But over the course of 20 years of marriage, it's always like that at my sister's. And then two years ago, we find ourselves at Thanksgiving, and it's a really quiet. The kids are grown, and they're not there, and there hadn't been 10 deer killed. There were two deer still hanging in the meat shed, and the husbands are going to leave the next morning and just check the shrimp and crab pots for the day, and they'll be back by noon. And Mark will get take care of those two deer when he comes back. About noon, we get a call, meet them down at the beach in front of the house, but it's not shrimp and crab we're offloading, there are four more deer coming in. And now the meat shed has the two that already need to be cut and the four from that day, and the boys need to go out and check the shrimp and crab pots, and they won't be back before dark, and, you know, there's a pile of work to be done. Ellen and I finish our lunch, and 
my sister says to me, well, let's get started on the meat. And I kind of try and deflect her of, you know, Mark likes to butcher his own meat. We'll wait till he gets home. And she has plenty to needle me about. And we go out to the meat shed. And I'm slow and out of shape. And I never could sharpen the knives right because I'm a lefty and I don't hold the steel correctly. So fine, sharpen my knives. And we butcher our deer, the two deer that are hanging that we're going to take back to Juno with us. And... We get dinner on the table, the boys come back, the shrimp and crab and more work to be done. And after dinner, Mark pushes back and very exhaustedly says, well, I better go start cutting the deer. And my sister says, no, we took care of it this afternoon. And my, my husband turns to my sister and says, well, thank you for doing that for me. And, and she says, well, Sarah and I each did one. And in that moment, he turns to my sister and says, she doesn't know how to butcher a deer. And my sister turns to me, and I say, he never asked. <laughs> now, I have to give you the epilogue, which is a few days after we returned from that trip, he signed us up to volunteer to what we now call our redneck dates, which is we are the roadkill salvage crew. So if you call the troopers or JPD because you hit a deer, we come to clean it up and butcher it to get into the Salvation Army food bank. And this winter when he went moose hunting, he got two, so we each have one to cut. And the last story we have for you for the Mudroom Season 7 sampler set is from May of this year. The theme was road trip. Our next storyteller is Tom Carson. Tom arrived in Juneau in 1972 as a 23-year-old, wet behind the ears Coast Guard ensign. He is now a retired environmental engineer, and as such, he knows full well that Juneau is the perfect place to own an electric vehicle. Maybe later. He's still having too much fun pouring hydrocarbons through interesting vintage vehicles. Please welcome Tom to the stage. So we were in a 2013 Chrysler Town and Country minivan. The old man had bought it new when he was 91. In the next four years, he'd driven it some 60,000 miles all over America. But a few months after his 95th birthday, my little brother took his keys away. Things had started to slip. Dents had appeared here and there on the van. There were five of us in the van that day. My little brother Johnny was driving. My wife Sherry and I were in the second row bucket seats. Johnny's wife Patty had the third row to herself. And the old man was in the co-pilot seat, which was not his first choice in seating but he was happy to be on the road again nonetheless. The cruise control was set at 85 and we were gliding across Montana, returning from uh, Billings to Seattle. 840 miles one day, just the way the old man liked to travel. <laughs> but this particular trip actually started 84 years earlier when he was about 11 years old. Him and his brother got a hold of a set of plans for a Northrop primary glider, and over the next 
couple years, they proceeded to build that glider and then teach themselves how to fly. In a primary glider, there's a tow vehicle and a tow line involved. You sit in the plywood bucket seat and the tow vehicle pulls you down the runway or grass field and the glider lifts off and gains elevation until at a certain point, you release the tow line. And at that moment, what you see in front of you are your feet on the rudder pedals, your hands hanging onto that joystick between your legs, and the wild blue yonder. The entire machine is behind you and uh, out of sight. And, and all you hear is the wind. And this is real flying. The old man claimed 2,662 flights in that glider. I mean, who knows, right? But uh, there is no doubt that he flew it a lot. And, and then during uh, the war years, he flew B-17s and B-29s. And he had a stint uh, as a test pilot for a, an experimental crop duster in eastern Washington. And eventually, that dude flew uh, every commercial jet that Boeing built from the 707 through the 747. And when he retired from Boeing at 62 as a chief training pilot technical, that was pretty much it for flying. It was interesting, but after that, his various Chryslers were the, his preferred mode of travel. He never flew to Juneau to visit us. He always drove up. So shortly after he lost his key privileges to the minivan, he was sitting in his uh, little independent living apartment in Bothell, Washington, and he came across an interesting article in an experimental aircraft magazine. It was about a group of middle school students in Billings, Montana, who were building a Northrop primary glider. And as you might imagine, my little brother heard about that that same day, and Johnny went home and Googled it, found the name of the teacher, called the school, and in short order, he was trading stories with this remarkable guy named Patrick Kenny. And it didn't take Mr. Kenny long uh, to recognize a unique opportunity and invite the old man to come to Billings to meet his students and for his students to meet the old man. So it took a few months to materialize, but uh, on Friday, May 11, last year, the five of us climbed into that minivan at 5 a.m. in the morning in Woodenville, Washington, and 14 hours later, we climbed out in Billings. But like the old man said, the seats in that Chrysler were so special that a, that a fellow felt better after 14 hours in them. <laughs> the, the dude was a Chrysler man. Anyway, the next morning, we, uh, we drove up to the Billings Airport, <clears throat> which is on a mesa overlooking town, and we found the hangar that housed the glider. They had the fuselage up against one end, and it was basically complete with the rudder and the ailerons, the little plywood bucket seat, and the joystick, and the rudder pedals. And the wing was setting off to one side, and it was awaiting, uh, it was awaiting fabric. They'd set up chairs on the hangar floor facing the fuselage, and uh, the old man was in his wheelchair in front of the fuselage as, uh, as the middle schoolers and their parents and, and friends and local pilots filed in and took their seats. 
Mr. Kenny had blown up some images from the old man's glider days and his flight career and put them on easels to the left and right of the wheelchair. And uh, after introductions, well, he told stories. He told stories about building his glider and he told stories about, you know, his days as a pilot. And he uh, concluded his remarks to a sincere applause from the audience and then there was a, a question and answer period. And it was pretty neat. Here were these lovely young people who had dreams of flying, right? And they were asking questions of this old man who had had those same dreams when he was their age and turned them into reality. It was pretty neat. Um, <clears throat> and then it was over, uh, one of the students, a young lady stood up, she was the leader of the group, and asked him to uh, tell them thank you for coming and asked him to sign their glider. So we wheeled him to the fuselage and he signed his name on the top of that little bucket seat. Um, it, it was an inspirational day, and, and I have to say that everybody filed out with their hopes and their dreams renewed. And the next morning, we got up bright and early and, uh, and left Billings. And as we said at the beginning of the story, we glided across Montana, sitting in these comfy Chrysler seats. And the old man, well, he was dreaming about the next road trip to Billings to see the glider fly. But on July 28, well, he breathed his last, and it was too soon. So this road trip became his final road trip. But the students' dreams, well, they live on, strengthened, I think, in some measure by, by the old man's final road trip. And I miss that dude. You're listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live during Mudroom's seventh season. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Jeff Smith, and Sarah Hannon. I'm Alita Buss. Have a good night.